This podcast episode was generously funded by two anonymous donors. If you would like to support the podcast in similar ways, please contact Hadley Kelly at hkelly at pbk.org. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Key Conversations with Phi Beta Kappa. I'm Fred Lawrence, Secretary and CEO of the Phi Beta Kappa Society. On this podcast, we feature conversations with leading scholars who are part of our Visiting Scholars program. They travel to colleges and universities around the country and deliver public talks on their specialties. To attend a free lecture, visit pbk.org for a full schedule. Today, I have the pleasure to welcome Professor Jamshid Choksi, a distinguished professor and chairperson of the Department of Central Eurasian Studies at Indiana University, Bloomington. His work explores one of the enduring questions around the very nature of being human. Why do we perceive a struggle between good and evil in so much of what makes up our very existence? And, by extension, how do those beliefs and practices shape our lives and our actions? Professor Choksi is also an authority on the Arab conquest of Iran, Iraq, the Persian Gulf, and Central Asia, the spread of Islam, and the impact of faith on politics, international relations, and security. Welcome, Professor. Thank you. It's hard to imagine a more topical set of issues that you've been working on for all these years in terms of Iran and Iraq and that whole area of the world. And I do want to spend some time talking about those things. But first, I want to talk about your journey a little bit. You were born in Mumbai, and then your family brought you to Sri Lanka where you grew up, right? That's correct. I happened to be born in Bombay at that time called Bombay, now Mumbai because my mother grew up there, and uh, she went back to uh, Bombay for better health care to make sure I came out kicking and screaming. Apparently it worked. Yes, so it did indeed. And uh, But no, I have no memories of being born, maybe. That's good. And uh, But grew up in Colombo, Sri Lanka, uh, so K through 12. And what was your education like? It was a British-style education, in fact, because my family was a minority background. My distant ancestors left Iran about a 1,000 years ago. Part of that was that I ended up traveling through Europe a great deal as a child. Did you think about attending university in South Asia, Sri Lanka, or India? Interestingly, I was uh, sort of, uh, from the get-go, the assumption in my family was that I would go abroad, in part because I came from a long line of attorneys, but I did not want to be an attorney. Uh, something that I'm sure you feel I strayed from. But. Well, there, it, it, it could well be a good choice. So so was either of your parents educated outside of uh, South no, Asia? No, they were all educated in South Asia. Uh, both of them were attorneys. Um, and uh, uh, one of my youngest brothers does continue that line. He's the sixth, sixth generation doing it as an attorney. Yeah. Six generations. Yeah, long time. I, I, was the, I was the one who strayed. But interestingly, your parents assumed, and you assumed, yeah. that you'd be educated in America necessarily or just abroad? Just abroad, uh, in part because uh, in high school, uh, I always in- envisioned myself uh, doing the sciences. And in fact, when it came down to college, I applied to do biology, in, uh, specifically molecular genetics. I applied to the United States, which I felt would be the best training, got into Columbia University, figured I'd love New York. And uh, as I think I mentioned to you, the flight into New York brought me right up uh, from the tip, I saw the entire New York stretch out, and I said, hey, this looks like home. And I'm not referring just to the city. So so what was the 
The first time you were in the United States was when you came to Columbia. Correct. So what was that experience like coming to the United States for a first time as an 18-year-old, I assume, and about yeah. to start your studies at Columbia College? A great adventure. Uh, I recall no trepidation, no fear. It was essentially, I guess, at 18, 19, one is pretty, one feels at least pretty indestructible. And that's exactly what it was. It was, I was in New York for about a month before Columbia began. And, uh, uh, yeah, sure, I mean, you know, you sort of adjust to college life and you adjust to taking courses. Uh, but it was a great place to go to college. So New York was your campus, not just more Exactly. And that's something you, I think, uh, particularly, and I would say this is true for most urban campuses. It tends to be that one, the town or the city really is the entirety of the campus. And New York is a magnificent one. And, uh, and as a result, uh, it was a much wider education. And what, of course, ended up happening is I didn't stick to molecular genetics. We both know where I ended up, uh, studying uh, the Middle East and Central Asia. Right. So, ta- uh, so take us along that path a little bit. What's the route from genetics to, to studying what you, the area studies you wound up doing? Right. It, it's interesting because if I had stayed in South Asia or if I had gone to a European university, even a British university, uh, one tends to be tracked into a particular discipline and then stick to that through your bachelor's degree, your master's, PhD, whatever. In a sense, you're stuck in it. Uh, what, what was really wonderful about an American university education, this is true, uh, I would say, for, whether it's a large campus, a small campus, whether it's private, uh, public, is the liberal arts education. And that's what I really valued at Columbia. That permitted me not just, in fact, I really did, I did a large number of courses in in chemistry, in physics, in biology, but I was also able to not just take Columbia's core curriculum, but also uh, take courses in history, languages. And I found increasingly, it sort of came to graduation time. And I remember thinking sort of actively, what do I want to do? And I said, okay, what is it that'll hold my interest? And sort of in, in a very crass sense, I thought, okay, you know, what's going to make me want to get up every day, get dressed, get out, even when I don't want to do it? And, and, and that's when I realized, hey, you know what? I like studying people. So from Columbia, you go to Harvard for your PhD. And by that point, you are focused on history and religions and, and in the Near East region, and, right? And in the Near East and Central Asia, studying both modern languages and, and a lot of dead, obscure languages. Again, integrating the languages with the history, with the religion, with the cultures, and also getting the opportunity to actually travel around the region. I was actually able to do that as an undergraduate at Columbia through fellowships that Columbia gave, and then in graduate school as well. Do you remember a particular visit to the region when you were in Colombia that was influential? Well, one that really sort of stuck out in my mind was uh, I was, uh, this was the summer uh, at the end of my junior year, and I was doing field work in what is the, what was then and is still now Pakistani Baluchistan. One evening, the SUV we were, we were traveling in took several flats, and uh, so with the flat tires, we had to hitch a ride. I ended up in the back of a truck uh, with what were then pro-American Mujahideen fighters who were fighting the Soviets and the Russians. And so, you know, anyone coming from the U.S., uh, even though I you know, was also known as sort of Sri Lankan, this went far. But I remember sort of riding back with them and, you know, they, they were talking about their weapons. And shall we say, at that time, a great fondness for the United States because we were helping them uh, push out the, the Soviets. But I remember thinking then, you know, what lies ahead for the region once the Soviets, once the Russians are gone. 
And what sort of society will uh, take hold? Will it be democratic? Nothing that I could see indicated it would be. So I kept wondering, you know, how deep will American values actually reach? I think we now have a better idea. That they didn't reach all, yeah, that, exactly. all that deeply. Exactly. And this those is same Mujahideen who were, as you say, pro-American then, turn out to be our adversaries a exactly. generation later, less exactly. than a generation. Yeah. And uh, it's because they see sides are switched. Interesting. Yeah. So the project that grows out of your time at Harvard and really has occupied you now in the ensuing decades is this extraordinary interdisciplinary set of projects, but in part starts at its core about religion and religious beliefs. So let's start there. And in particular, there are areas that you study that I think it's probably fair to say most Americans don't know that much about. So so give us a little thumbnail education okay. about uh, Zoroastrianism and uh, Manichaeism and what should every educated American know about those as well as Islam, where I think there's sure. a little more knowledge among Americans now. But but even with that, if this is your this is your chance to educate America, what do you think everybody ought to know? I think the first thing uh, every American should know is that whenever they see an American politician, particularly an American president, it doesn't matter whether a Democrat or a Republican, stand up and say, we are fighting a good war. God is on our side. That all goes back to the Central Asian steppe, maybe somewhere between 1500 to 1800 uh, BC or BCE, to an individual called Zarathustra, known in the West as Zoroaster, gives us the religion called Zoroastrianism, who, who looked at his own society, tried to explain it, and explained it by, by, by bifurcating the world into good and evil, Good people, bad people, good good creations, bad creations, a good divinity who creates and an evil spirit who destroys. So you end up with a, essentially a wise lord from whom all good flows and an angry spirit from whom all evil flows. So as opposed to a Judeo-Christian image exactly. of, a, of a good God, but there are other forces in the world, but the good God, as it were, has a rooting interest in, in goodness and, and justice prevailing. This is a world that's got multiple powerful forces. Exactly. So if you look at, let's say, uh, if you take uh, the Judeo-Christian and Islamic tradition, essentially you have a monotheistic deity who is capable and from whom ultimately good and evil originates. The system put forward by Zarathustra, there's a fundamental dualism. It's a spiritual and a material dualism. And so you have a good God who's trying to make sure the world remains good and an evil spirit who's involved in trying to undermine affairs. And that what Zarathustra did was attempt to give humans a very definite role. It was for Zarathustra, the role of humans are to fight on behalf of the good God. The, in a sense, fight the good fight right. on behalf of good against evil. And uh, what Zarathustra, in a sense, started there permeates, eventually, this would reach Judaism. It would enter Judaism after the Babylonian exile. So if there's something the American public should know is that this goes back to a religion called Zoroastrianism. Zoroastrianism became the predominant religion of ancient or pre-Islamic Iran. After about the year 700, it declined as Iranians became Muslim. But there still are Zoroastrians in Iran, in the Indian subcontinent, to which many of them uh, migrated. 
and then from both Iran and the Indian subcontinent, global migrations in the 19th and 20th centuries. So there are about 10,000 or so Zoroastrians in the United States. I may even be talking to one right now. Is that Indeed. right? So one of, one of your visits for Phi Beta Kappa, I think it was Texas Tech, your host said that before meeting you, she had never met a single Zoroastrian and then apparently in the airport meets another and said, so the number I'd met had doubled overnight. <laughs> Indeed. And so Zoroastrianism sounds actually very similar to Manichaeism, or are there differences I'm not seeing? Well, let me add a few more things about Zoroastrianism. Please. One other thing that the American public should know is that Zarathustra, Zoroaster, in conceiving his religious universe, also laid out the notion of life after death, reward or punishment of the soul based on one's deeds, uh, the notion of heaven and hell, and the notion of a final renovation, so a final refreshment, after which there's heaven on earth. I think those words should sound very familiar they do to indeed. a very substantial part of the world population. But these, these notions were ones that he did not inherit and pass on, but really ones that he created. These are... Uh, Ideas of afterlife had existed. Ideas of good and evil had existed. What Zarathustra really did was put them together, uh, tried to uh, focus them on each individual's role, and then, shall we say, hang out sort of the reward aspect. Not quite convinced that humans would do good for its own sake. Right. So having <laughs> having a benefit waiting for you there on the you other go. side. There you go. Exactly. So this, this, this aspect of reward and punishment being brought in, but also, shall we say, fundamental notion that at the end of time, there will be a final judgment and then a final refreshing. He used, he used a word called frasho kerati, frasho, direct cognate with the English fresh, refresh. Mm -hmm. So to make fresh the world and there, after which there would be sort of a blissful existence. And a notion that in our time, is thought of as the resurrection. Exactly, exactly. And this notion of the resurrection and of heaven on earth. In terms of knowledge within the United States, in particular of Islam, I think it's probably fair to say that more than two decades ago, the knowledge base was, was fairly low among mm -hmm. most people. I think there's Correct. been a pretty significant engagement with Islam in the last two decades, some of that for the good, some of that less so. Right. But what is your sense about the awareness level, and where, where are the gaps in terms of what Americans ought to know about Islam? The awareness level clearly has skyrocketed. Uh, skyrocketed, unfortunately, not because of positive events. Where the gaps, I think, are is a perception that all Muslims are monochromatic in terms of their beliefs. Another misperception is that Islam is rooted uh, in violence, which it is not. Those would be some of the fundamental uh, mm -hmm. misperceptions. To, uh, you know, it would be valuable for uh, us to realize that while 90% of uh, Muslims are what are called Sunnis, they follow uh, the customs set down by the founder of the religion, uh, the Prophet Muhammad, uh, that there is a 10% minority who are Shia, who believe more in sort of a chain of authority that goes from the founder of the religion through his descendants. Those are the Shia, and Shiism is the predominant religion in Iran now. So in some sense, you can use the religious angle uh, to focus on even political differences between Saudi Arabia, 
which champions itself as the upholder of Sunnism, and Iran that sees itself as the safeguard of Shiism. So there's a connection between a political exactly. battle and a battle motivated by religious belief. By religious, by, uh, shall we say, divergences of religious belief that goes all the way back to the founding of the of the Muslim community in the 7th century. So a long history there. Another major uh, misperception is we tend to equate Islam to the Middle East. And uh, one thing we should keep in mind is that there are more Muslims outside the Middle East. In South Asia and Southeast Asia... Right. Indonesia uh, in, has exactly. got an enormous Indonesia, population. Indonesia, Malaysia... India, Pakistan, Bangladesh uh, far outnumber the number of Muslims, Sunni, and Shia in the Middle East. So we've been talking about some ancient times and ancient practices and things that motivate. Uh, but as we're sitting here, Iran is dealing with what appears to be potentially cataclysmic events and change and certainly more violence than we've seen in that country in 40 years or so. So this is a major area of expertise of yours. In fact, uh, some time ago, 2012, you wrote an intriguing piece called Are the Mullahs Losing Their Grip? Well, now it's 2019 uh, and into 2020. Are they losing their grip and what lies ahead for Iran? They are losing their grip, but it's not going to be an overnight process, as we can just see from the time between, from that article to now. It's a very gradual process. Let's keep in mind the Islamic Republic has endured for over 40 years. The revolution occurred in 1978, 1979. So it's been around for quite a bit. And uh, you have a second generation of, of just not, not just mullahs, but uh, uh, Iranian politicians allied with the revolution. The recent problems, they stem from economics. Uh, the, shall we say, the uh, uh, final straw uh, was the hiking of gas prices. Uh, Iran, like much of the developing world, has a problem where governments subsidize the basic necessities, whether it is uh, food, food items like rice or sugar, and in this case, gasoline. Right away, you know, your listeners will say, well, Iran produces a lot of oil. Correct. They produce a substantial amount of crude oil. However, in part because of American sanctions, but also in part because of just infrastructural neglect, Iran's oil refining capacity is rather low. In other words, Iran is a major, was and will continue to be a major exporter of crude oil. They, however, are a net importer of refined gasoline. So the government has to make sure that the population can afford to pay for the for gas for so, their cars. So their gasoline is actually not coming from their own production. It goes out of country exactly. and has to come back into uh, country. Not, not, not all of it. Uh, Iran has been, over the last 40 years, Iran has been working quite uh, steadfastly to improve their refining capacity. However, because of the technological gap and the limitations of them acquiring technology, they've not been able to, uh, shall we say, reach parity. As a result, they are a net importer and so the government had been subsidizing the purchase of gasoline for automobiles. The government, for sheer economic reasons, had to scale back, which provoked public outrage. That outrage then moved from the economic dimension to the political dimension and, shall we say, the global geopolitical dimension. Questions of why is Iran spending money on uh, subsidizing Hezbollah in Lebanon or subsidizing the Assad regime in Syria rather than spending the money at home. And from the Iranian government's point of view, they're doing so because they want to extend their global influence. 
However, from the domestic population's point of view, they'd rather see the money spent at home. This may sound familiar to, to our own audiences in modern times, right? Well, the challenge yeah. between what you do abroad, what exactly. you do at home. There but, you go. But, but as you look down the road, where, where do you see this heading for Iran? Well, you saw what happened. It was very violently quashed. The violence this time was open. So where does this go? Uh, the regime, I doubt the regime is going to collapse overnight. No. But the question is, in the long run, what happens, particularly what happens when the current supreme leader, Khamenei, passes. That's going to be the next opening to see whether Iran, because the fundamental question is, 40 years after the revolution, does Iran really need a supreme leader? Clearly, what is happening is you can see this rising resentment in the population that wants essentially their socioeconomics to prevail. And let's move from Iraq and look a little bit around the region. Right. Because uh, from Iran, if you look at Iraq, we've seen protests there, right particularly across, in the south. Right across the border. Again, and again, the triggers have been water supply, electricity, uh, uh, transportation. So once again, economic issues that then have sparked outrage against both the incumbent government and the government's foreign allies. We've had riots uh, and uh, we've had the entire Arab Spring. Again, those were economic triggers. And one of the reasons underlaying all this is across the Middle East, whether it's Iran, whether it's Iraq, whether it's Egypt, whether it's Saudi Arabia, is we're looking at populations that are relatively young. More than 50% of the population tends to uh, range under the age of 25 or 30. So these are individuals who have received a state-sponsored university education, who cannot find employment, who expect better from their government and from their nation, and who are connected to the rest of the world and know there are opportunities out there. And they know there's something different. Exactly. So we've spent a lot of time halfway around the world. Let me bring you back home uh, okay. to another capacity that you've served in and that actually has a strong Phi Beta Kappa resonance. Phi Beta Kappa was one of the institutions that was essential to the founding of the National Endowment for the Humanities and National Endowment for the Arts in the early 1960s. And you, until recently, served on the council, the National Council on the Humanities, which oversees the NEH. So tell us a little bit about what that work was like and what you see the the opportunities and role for the National Endowment for the Humanities in our time. So from a personal perspective, it was a great honor, a great privilege, and it really made me understand uh, the notion of serving a nation. Uh, the Most people, when they think about the National Endowment for the Humanities, associated with grants to scholars, to academic institutions, maybe occasional sponsorship of public broadcasting, uh, movies, but the public really doesn't understand that this is a superb reinvestment of their tax dollars. The NH budget never, rarely, shall we say, I don't, I don't think it has ever exceeded $150 million a year. Well, uh, our, our hope in the next fiscal year is that is it will. much higher. Yes, that's I know. Another issue for another podcast. Another podcast but, to discuss, yes. But, but that's the range, yeah, about $150, yeah, about 160 $160 million. If you think $150, $160 million out of the entire U.S. budget, it's not even a drop. However, that little drop doesn't just go to universities or museums. It permeates across the nation. Over 40% of that goes directly back to each of the states, to the humanities councils of each and every state, and goes to every public library, whether it is books, whether it is museums, whether it is educational sessions, 
It permeates every aspect of American life, and that's what I did not realize until I served on the council. During one of the budget crises, when they were thinking of uh, lopping down the NEH, I did, did speak in Congress. What I pointed out was I said, you can take the entire NEH budget, and it is a couple of predator drones. If you look at the return to the nation from that investment in the NEH, or even the NEA, the National Endowment for the Arts, it's much greater. It's, it's about, about about fifty cents per person. Exactly, phenomenal, uh, and and has played a uh, major role. Major in life role of the in every aspect of who we are, what we do, how we think, across communities, across ages, across economic boundaries. You have studied all over the world. You've lectured all over the world. And then as a visiting scholar, we sent you to a number of schools. I'm quite sure there were ones you had never been to before, some you may never have heard of before. Do you have a favorite couple of stories from your year as a visiting scholar you could share with us? I think I mentioned to you a little while ago that if I could do it all over again, I would. Uh, because I think what you actually said is that you would you I would, would pay, pay to me do for it. the honor of being a visiting scholar, and <laughs> yeah. I think I told you I accepted that yes. offer. Yes, yeah, I know you did, but you noticed I rephrased it because, unfortunately, you know, I couldn't fund it all myself. <laughs> if I could, I would, because <laughs> here's the thing. These are challenging times, not just domestically, but globally. And from each and every visit, what I realized was the phenomenal impact of education on the United States. It didn't matter whether it was in upstate New York or at the end of the High Plains in Texas or the foothills of the Cascade Mountains or at Ole Miss. It was, you, you saw, and I, I, I just viscerally felt the impact of a broad education and the role that, frankly, Phi Beta Kappa was playing in this. We're delighted you could be part of it this year, and I'm going to Thank take you. you up on your offer to stay involved. You're, Almost you're a member of the Phi Beta Kappa family. Thank you. Thanks Thank you so much, much for spending the time with us today. Great pleasure. Thank you. This podcast is produced by Lantigua Williams & Co. Paul Amardo is our sound designer. Hadley Kelly is the PBK producer on the show. Emma Forbes is the show's intern. Our theme song is Back to Back by Jan Perchik. To learn more about the Phi Beta Kappa Visiting Scholars Program, please visit pbk.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Fred Lawrence. Until next time. <laughs>